Good evening. Continuing systematic theology session number 33. And we just finished an introduction to the next portion of systematic theology, which is the redemption of God's people, those who God elected to save from before the world existed. We began last time by looking at three questions. Why do we need salvation? What are we saved from? And why can't we just save ourselves anyway? We answered those questions by seeing our hopeless condition before salvation. We were dead in our sins, alienated from God, under a debt to God's law. We couldn't even begin to pay it. And liable to God's justice and the punishment that would result due to the crime of our sin. We're saved from the wrath of God, which is the necessary response of God's justice to our sin. In effect, God's mercy saves us from God's wrath. And we saw that we can't save ourselves. God's work of saving us is what we call monergistic. In other words, the work of God alone. God doesn't just lower a ladder into the pit that we're stuck in and tells us, okay, I've supplied the ladder, now your turn to work, start climbing. A dead person cannot do anything, much less climb out of a pit, even with the best ladder that Home Depot sells. If God had simply left sinners in their state of sin under the curse of the law and left them to their own ability to deal with it, then our situation would indeed be hopeless. We see that hopelessness when we look at other religions, with their endless, useless works and sacrifices that cannot save. Our great need is the need for redemption. To be saved from this hopelessness, we need to be purchased out of this slavery to sin. Our legal status, the pronouncement of the eternal judge upon us, needs to be changed from guilty to not guilty. We need to have the punishment for our sins removed from us. We need for our relationship to God to be changed from alienation to reconciled. That's what it means to be redeemed. Now, as we go forward in our study of redemption, we'll organize it into two major sections. The first section is Christ winning redemption for us by his work on the cross, his offering of himself upon the cross. And the second part of redemption is the application of those benefits of redemption to Christ's people. And this application is to particular people given to Christ by the Father, and this application is done by the divine person of the Holy Spirit. So first, we're we're looking at the first major section of redemption, and that is Christ winning redemption for us. The center of this accomplishment of Christ's work of redemption is his work that he did once for all with his work on the cross. The work of Christ on the cross for his people, that work that wins the benefits of salvation for his people, is called the atonement. The atonement. Spurgeon said this about the definition of the atonement in one of his sermons. I thank God I have a definition of the atonement which to me is most clear, sure, and full of comfort. Here it is. He, his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree. I can live by that and I can die by that. So let's turn first tonight to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 will be in verse 24. And it's a much discussed passage when we start delving into things like prophecy and different people have different views on it. But first, let's read Daniel chapter 9, verse, 30, verse 24, 9, 24. Seventy weeks 
are declared about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, this is the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which is literally 77s, or 490 years. And this section gives a prophecy of historical events that will occur up to and including the time when Jesus fulfilled his earthly walk. And we don't have time tonight to go into depth into the passage. And for a full explanation of it, though, Pastor Tim did a series of teachings on the prophecy of 70 weeks. And you can find it on Sermon Audio from August and September of 2012. So that's where you want to go look. But without going into the reasons why, the portion of the 70 weeks prophecy that deals with the 70th week, which is a period of seven years, points to the time frame and events of the first coming of Christ and the work that he was to do in his earthly walk, and then the following destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans later on. Verse 24, which we just read, lists several accomplishments of the work of Christ and how those accomplishments led from the period of the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant to this transition to the New Covenant. I want to focus on one of these accomplishments where it says this, to atone for iniquity, to atone for iniquity. The great work of Christ was the cross, and the purpose of the cross was to atone for iniquity. And the action of atonement sort of presupposes a need for atonement. It presupposes the presence of sin and the wrath of God that must follow from that, from our iniquity. God, being perfectly holy and perfectly just, cannot simply forgive sin by sort of ignoring its presence and pretending it isn't there. If our sins are to be forgiven, if we are not to be charged with sin and judged for our sins, then atonement is required. So what is atonement? Atonement is the covering or removal of sin and the resulting disposal of guilt by means of an instrument of atonement. And when I use the term instrument of atonement, this is a means of atonement, the particular way that God chooses to provide atonement for our sins. Under the covenant of Moses back in the Old Testament, God provided the blood of animals as an instrument of atonement. As we'll see later, God didn't intend for the blood of animals to be a perfect and permanent instrument of atonement, but he intended it to look forward to a perfect instrument of atonement that would come later, the blood of Christ at the cross. We've defined atonement, so now let's look at the question of God's motive. Why did God provide a means of atonement? Why does God save? Some people hold that the Father, in his anger against sin, had already sort of just determined to destroy all sinners. But then Christ steps in, and in sympathy and love saves the sinner, and then Christ receives all the glory for it, but in this case, the Father is robbed of honor. But in previous sessions, we saw that the three persons of the Trinity are always in agreement about their actions. When we looked at the doctrine of what we called inseparable operations— We saw that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the actions of God, inseparable operations. Christ didn't have a different agenda from the Father or the Holy Spirit in saving his people. 
The Father and the Son were not working at cross purposes with different motives. All three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had, had the same motive in providing a means of atonement. So what was the motive of God to save his people? The theologian Burkhoff calls this the moving cause of the atonement, the moving cause of the atonement. And that moving cause for the atonement was the good pleasure of God, the love of God for his people. The justice of God requires that the law must be fulfilled. Its requirements must be met. The love of God provides a way for the law's requirements to be met but which also gives sinners a way of being released from personal punishment for their sins. The moving cause for God making this way, this way of atonement for sins, that moving cause is the love of God. It wasn't the cross that enabled God's love. God's love didn't just arise after Christ's work on the cross. It wasn't like God was unable to love sinners until the cross took that roadblock of justice out of the way. God's love for his people was there in eternity past. Let's turn next to familiar, a familiar passage, John three sixteen. Read verses 16 and 17. It's here where the love of God is the moving cause of the atonement. It's shown in this passage. John three sixteen, for For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So John 3.16, it's worded in sort of a cause and effect way. The way that the Greek language expresses it, God loved at a point in the past. That love was the pre-existing cause for what comes next. What comes next is the effect of God's love. God's action that arises from his love. What comes next is a so-that statement. God loved at a point in the past with a pre-existing love so that a divine action comes from that cause. That divine action is the giving of his only son. The passage then goes on to show that if this divine action arising from God's love didn't happen, the only alternative is we would perish. The divine action of sending the Son to accomplish atonement makes all the difference. It makes the difference between two outcomes for God's people. The two opposite outcomes are perish or have eternal life. And I can't imagine a more profound contrast. To come to absolute ruin eternally or to have eternal life. We'll turn next to Romans chapter 5, where there's another passage that shows that God's love was the moving cause of the atonement. Read Romans 5, verses 6 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but... God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ESV translation that we're reading from renders this, God shows his love. 
but I like the stronger English word that the New American Standard uses. The New American Standard uses the word demonstrates. The New American Standard renders this phrase, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God had pre-existing love for us. And God demonstrates that love by the atonement of Christ. God's love saw us in a sinful condition which we couldn't remedy by our own efforts. But out of the motive of his love, God showed Israel that a remedy was coming. This remedy would not depend on Israel's performance, but on the obedience and finished work of a mediator. I'm going to read from Jeremiah next. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And here the coming of a new covenant is prophesied, a covenant that would be different from the covenant of Moses that was given clear back on Sinai. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God himself is to bring the remedy. The remedy is summed up in verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The covenant at Sinai only showed the inability of sinful man to save himself. The new covenant would depend on the faithfulness of the mediator. Love was the moving cause of the atonement, as Burkhoff phrased it. The atonement didn't cause God to love us, as though the Father's will to bring punishment had to be overruled by the Son's love. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did not have separate agendas in salvation or in anything else. God's love for his people preceded the atonement and provided the moving cause for the atonement. Now let's move on to how atonement is accomplished. Justice is an attribute of God, and God cannot simply ignore judgment for sin. God's love provides the moving cause for providing a way of escape from judgment and punishment. The way that God provides is what we know is the atonement, but how is atonement accomplished? One way we can approach this is to think in terms of a term that some theologians use, which we touched on a few minutes ago, and that term is the instrument of atonement. The instrument of atonement. What is an instrument of atonement? It's a means that's used to atone for sin. The Lord does not simply overlook sin, and he does not simply proclaim forgiveness without atonement. Sin must be judged. 
Only once sin is judged is it finally dealt with. All of the human race following Adam are sinners. Sin is addressed by God in only one of two ways. A sinner may die in their sins, and then they will give account for their sins at the day of judgment. At that point, what must result is eternal punishment. The only other way that sins can be dealt with is by means of atonement, where the judgment is placed upon another who stands in the place of the sinner. God giving us a means of atonement, an instrument of atonement that can be applied to us so that we don't pay the penalty for our sins personally is an act of God's grace. God is graciously giving us a great blessing we do not deserve. In the atonement, God replaces what we do deserve, eternal punishment for our sins, with what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness of our sins. Now, the instrument of atonement or the means of atonement, has to pass three tests. First, the instrument of atonement has to be appointed by God. We can't just decide on our own how our sins are to be atoned for. I can't just decide I'm going to give up something of my own choosing, like giving up eating chocolate for Lent, and have that accomplish anything toward atonement. What the instrument of atonement is, that's not a decision that's ours to make. It is God who does the work of atonement since we are helpless to remedy our own condition. Because of this, God must choose the means of atonement. Now, the second necessary requirement of the instrument of atonement, the means of atonement, must involve a substitution of life for the life of another. A substitution. In other words, atonement must be substitutionary. We deserve punishment for our sins, but atonement substitutes another in our place. The third necessary requirement of the instrument of atonement was the flawless nature of the substitute. The flawless nature of the substitute. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices, the innocence of the substitute was symbolized by a requirement for the animal. The animal had to be visually spotless and without flaw, without blemish. One thing we saw in a previous study was that there was a checklist of 73 possible types of blemish on an animal, and the animal had to pass every test before it could be accepted as a sacrifice. Atonement involves what I just mentioned, which is an instrument of atonement, a means of atonement. In the Old Testament, the instrument of atonement was the blood of animals. Let's turn next to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus 17. Read verses 10 and 11. And here we see the special status that God gave to the blood of animals under the law of Moses. Leviticus 17, I'll start in verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In this passage, God established a relationship between the blood of an animal and the life of the animal. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And we see that even as God himself set up this correspondence between the blood and the life. 
it is God who appointed the blood for the purpose of atonement. God states, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We see that it is God who appoints the blood as the instrument or means of atonement. And we also see that the other condition is met. The atonement involves a substitution, the lifeblood of the animal for the life of the sinner. God stated that the life of the animal, its blood makes atonement for their souls or their lives. This is a clear statement of substitutionary atonement. What is substitutionary atonement? It is the fact that the death of Christ substituted for the death we rightly deserved to die. You might also hear the term vicarious atonement, and it means the same thing. The word vicarious just means doing something in place of someone else. So you you might hear vicarious atonement or substitutionary atonement. And this divinely established relationship between the blood and atonement was so strong under the law that the penalty for this high-handed sin of eating animal blood was that God would set his face against that person and that person would be cut off from among the people. Even though God specified the blood of animals as the instrument of atonement under the covenant of Moses, it's critical to keep in mind that this blood of animals was not the instrument of perfect substitutionary atonement. The ceremonies of the covenant of Moses in the Old Testament, they were there as types and shadows of what was to come. All the blood of countless animals could not finally and completely atone for sins. The atonement that animal blood, what it brought was temporary and had to be repeated every year. This blood was meant to take God's people to school, so to speak. They needed an education. They needed to be shown of their need for atonement and what that atonement required. They needed to go to school on the true Savior to come, the one who would be the actual substitute. Let's turn next to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And here we'll see that the instrument of atonement under the covenant of Moses, the blood of animals, was imperfect, and it was never designed to be permanent. Hebrews chapter 10, I'll read verses 1 to 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, Paul, who I believe to be the author of Hebrews, is addressing Hebrew Christians who are being tempted to abandon Christianity and go back to Judaism with all of its ceremonial trappings. And here Paul is pointing out that all of the sacrifices that were still going on at that time in the temple were outmoded, obsolete, and no longer accomplished anything. But further, he points out that the Old Testament sacrifices, they were never meant to be the final answer to sin. They were a shadow of good things to come. 
The animal sacrifices were not the good things themselves, but they were pointing to an effective and true reality that was yet to come, which was Christ. Paul then proves that the animal sacrifices were imperfect and not the final answer to sin. The proof was that they were offered year after year. I can't imagine how many animals were sacrificed under the Old Testament. For year after year, 1,500 years, the covenant of Moses went on, and year after year, more animals without blemish were offered. So much animal blood shed. But each year after the Day of Atonement, the job was not finished. Next year would come, and the process had to be repeated again. The people were never finally completely cleansed. Next year would come with another reminder of their sins that required blood to be shed. Paul states this repetitive priestly task again a few verses later. We go on to verse 11. He says, every, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The priests of the Mosaic Covenant stood daily at their service. They stood. At my workplace, I have a nice, puffy, comfy chair where I do my work. But the tabernacle and the temple and the furniture that God commanded to be placed there did not include nice, comfy chairs for the priests. The priests stood at their service. They didn't sit down. This was to show that their work was never done. Every day there were more sacrifices. Every year there was another day of atonement. Verse 11 says they offered repeatedly the same sacrifices, the same sacrifices continually, day after day, year after year. Paul was making it clear to the Hebrew Christians being tempted to go back to that system, just what it was they were contemplating. They were contemplating going back to sacrifices that could never completely and fully take away their sins. The Old Testament instrument of atonement was imperfect, temporary, meant to shadow the reality yet to come, the reality of the fully effective instrument of atonement, the blood of Christ at the cross. And the fact that the work of Christ at the cross was fully effective in taking away sins is shown in the next few verses in Hebrews, verses 12 to 14. It says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's substitutionary atonement at the cross is the perfect instrument of atonement. Paul proves this with Three words, he sat down. The Old Testament priests didn't sit down. Their work was never finished. Over 1,500 years, their work, day after day, year after year, was never finished. They never sat down during their duties. Their work was never done. But Paul says of Christ after his perfect atoning work, he sat down. The work is finished after Christ's atonement. There is nothing more to be done. Verse 14 tells us why. It says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
what needed to be done in the atonement for Christ's people was done once and for all in this single offering. In that single offering, the work of taking our sins away is done. The instrument of atonement, the means of atonement, had to be the shedding of blood. The Old Testament shedding of animal blood was imperfect and showed the need for the perfect instrument of atonement, which also involved the shedding of blood, the blood of our Savior. I'll read next from a couple of chapters back. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For the atonement to substitute for us, the substitute must die. Blood must be shed. The Old Testament sacrifices had value as instruments of atonement only as types and shadows of the perfect instrument of atonement yet to come. The Old Testament animal sacrifices were meant to teach of the principle of the perfect atonement to come and served as a temporary covering of sin. The sins of Old Testament saints, yes, they were forgiven, but they were forgiven by the work of the cross yet to come. All of the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices were meant to point to something more substantial. When we see a shadow, we realize the shadow is made by something with substance. The shadow isn't the substance, but it is evidence that there's something substantial creating the shadow. All the Old Testament ceremonies, holy days, sacrifices were shadows that pointed to what is substantial, which is Christ. I'll read from Colossians chapter 2 next. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where Paul points out the difference between shadow and substance. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul's warning the Colossian Christians to not be persuaded by false arguments, to swerve away from the gospel toward things that cannot finally save. One of the false arguments was adding to the gospel the keeping of Old Testament ceremonies. Paul now shows that that's foolish, the foolish nature of looking to these ceremonies for favor with God. The Old Testament ceremonies had been commanded by God previously for a purpose, and that purpose had been served. The purpose was to be a shadow of the substance that was yet to come. And these shadows prefigured the work of Christ at the cross, and now the fulfillment, it's come. The shadows served their purpose, but because the substance, it had arrived. Verse 17 says it, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We know that God's people, his elect under the Old Testament, were truly saved. Even though Christ had not yet come, and the work of the effective atonement, the cross, was yet to come, those who God elected to salvation, who lived under the Old Testament, were saved. Christ had already agreed unconditionally to pay the sin debt of all of his people. 
We know that God's people who lived under the Old Testament were truly saved because the Old Testament speaks in the language of salvation. I'll read from Psalm 32 to show this. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Here, David recounts his sin. Probably his sin with Bathsheba. His guilt, God's grace, and his gratitude for God's grace. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The cross was still a thousand years in the future. David knew his sin was forgiven, though, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote scripture here testifying that he was forgiven. So David was truly forgiven, and this happened a thousand years before the cross. Now, an outside observer might look at the forgiveness given to David and all of those who were truly God's people under the Old Testament and say, well, did God simply relax his law for Old Testament believers? Did he lower the bar? Did God ignore justice during that time? To answer that question, let's turn to Romans chapter 3, and we'll read verses 21 to 26. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. And here Paul shows that the cross was a public demonstration, open to everyone, of his justice concerning all sins, including the sins of God's people before the time of the cross. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One of the effects of the cross was as a public demonstration. Many sins were committed by God's people during the times of the Old Testament. The animal sacrifices were only an imperfect instrument of atonement. They only temporarily covered sins. An outside observer could look at this and say, what happened to the perfect justice of God? Why, over centuries, did God not exact the eternal punishment that God's people should have received? This is the question that leads to verse 25. Verse 25 tells us that God, in his divine forbearance, had passed over former sins. These former sins were sins committed by God's people before the work of the cross was completed. An outside observer might look at this forbearance, this passing over of sin, not bringing eternal wrath upon their sins right then at that time as an accusation that God's justice is not perfect. That observer might say that, well, in the end, God lowered the bar on justice from perfection to good enough. But then verse 25 proves that God has not diminished the demands of the law even though the previous Old Testament sins were passed over. 
God put forward Christ on the cross, out in the open, publicly, for the world to see that those previous sins were not just neglected by lowering the law's standard. Verse 25 tells us that God put Christ forward as a propitiation, a means of turning away righteous wrath. And that this public action demonstrates God's righteousness. The Old Testament saints were saved by the blood of Jesus, just like we are today. Verse 26 goes on to restate this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. The public display of the cross publicly vindicated God's righteousness. Those previous sins committed by God's people were not just swept under the rug as though they didn't happen. The cross publicly shows this. Then verse 26 goes on. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross demonstrates the righteousness of God concerning the sins of God's Old Testament people, allowing God to be fully just, but also a justifier. Because of the cross, God is perfectly just, but can also account sinners as just when they come to Christ in faith. The saving benefit of the cross reaches both forward and backward. It reaches forward to us today and backward to the Old Testament believers. Back in Isaiah chapter 53, I'll read verse 6. Isaiah 53 verse 6. It speaks of Christ taking the sins of all of his people, whether Old Testament or New Testament. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. In this case, all is all of God's people reaching back before the cross when Isaiah was writing and forward of the cross to us. To summarize how Old Testament saints were saved, they were saved just as we are under the New Testament, but they didn't have as much understanding of the perfect instrument of atonement, the cross, as we do today. God gave the imperfect and temporary means of atonement, the blood of animals, as a shadow of what was to come. It was a temporary provision for covering and taking away their sins. It was also a way of teaching what was yet to come by foreshadowing what was to come with a type of the perfect instrument of atonement. The instrument of atonement under the covenant of Moses was not perfect. It was not final because it had to be repeated. But God's true people of that time were saved by grace. Through faith, what was revealed to them at the time in those types and shadows. Their sins, through the provision of animal sacrifice, were covered, but it wasn't until the cross that their sins and ours were fully, completely, and permanently blotted out. The cross is a public display before all that the sins committed under the Old Testament were not just ignored. The cross publicly showed the cost of forgiving the sins that God temporarily passed over. The Westminster Confession of Faith 
states that believers in the Old Testament were justified not by their own works of the law, but by the work of Christ yet to come. And the confession phrases it this way. It says, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all these respects one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. Earlier, we defined what atonement is and what tests the atonement has to pass to be a true instrument of atonement. God cannot simply ignore his essential attribute of justice. Our sins must be judged. Either the sinner must be judged and bear punishment, or a substitute must be judged and bear the punishment. Atonement is a means of the penalty for our sins being paid. The instrument of atonement, the means of atonement, has to be appointed by God. We don't just come up with our own solution to sin. Atonement must involve substitution. We deserve punishment for our sins, but in the atonement, another bears the punishment in our place as our substitute. Then finally, the substitute must be flawless, without blemish. The true nature of the atonement accomplished by Christ at the cross is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. You know, we use the word penal in our society to refer to the system of law enforcement, the court system, the punishment of lawbreakers. The atonement is described as penal because it involves how violation of God's law is punished. The word substitutionary, we've already looked at. The atonement involves a substitute being judged and punished for our sins in our place as our substitute. That is the true nature of the atonement, what is called penal substitutionary atonement. Now that we've defined atonement, we're going to look now at false theories of the atonement. False theories of the atonement. False theories of the atonement, they tend to arise because people are offended by the truth of penal substitution. Some people in a recent movement called the Emerging Church Movement, you may have heard of it in recent years, the Emerging Church, accused penal substitutionary atonement of being cosmic child abuse, where a vengeful father is punishing his son for offenses he didn't commit, and the son had no choice in the matter. People tend to have a low view of sin, thinking that sin is not really as serious as it is, or they have a high view of their own righteousness or a high view of their own ability to please God in some other way. shouldn't be surprising that there are false views of the atonement. And I'm just going to cover a couple of these false views. The first one is called the moral influence theory of the atonement. The moral influence theory. All this is in your notes that have been, that have been handed out. This false theory, the moral influence theory of the atonement, it holds that sacrifice was never necessary for removing sins. Instead, the reason Christ willingly went to the cross was to serve as a kind of martyr. His death would act as an example of devotion to truth and duty, a devotion we should all have. The atonement provides an example to us of God's love so that we'll be emotionally influenced toward repentance. Many in the world who are forced to deal with the cross but don't really want to deal with their sins, will believe that Christ was only a willing martyr to be the pinnacle of duty to truth. Looking at this ultimate example, well, it would motivate us to turn over a new leaf, to just be a better person. 
But you know what? If man only needed a good example to turn over a new leaf, then man would be able to change his own nature by just willing it so. But we already saw in our last session that man is not only spiritually sick, but spiritually dead. In our state before salvation, the state of being spiritually dead, we had no resources. We had no way of simply looking at a good example and deciding to turn over a new leaf and save ourselves like we're making a New Year's resolution. Also, if man did not really need to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life by the power of God, if we could just do this ourselves by looking at a good example, then Christ did not really have to die. If we could just make a New Year's resolution to save ourselves by looking at a good example, then we're back under the obligation to keep the law in order to be saved. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, which I'll read, Galatians 2, 21, Paul tells us that if we had that ability, then Christ died needlessly. The verse tells us this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. One thing we can be assured of, God doesn't do anything wastefully. God doesn't do anything that has no purpose. If we were to ever have righteousness given by God, then Christ had to die for us. He had to die as our substitute. The high price that God paid in the death of the Son proves the necessity of the cross. The moral influence theory is absolutely false and a denial of the gospel. Now, the next false theory of the atonement is called the moral government theory of the atonement. The moral government theory. This theory holds that Christ's death on the cross didn't really pay the sin debt that sinners deserve. Instead, his death was kind of a token acknowledgement that God's law is holy and that we violated that holy law. The theory holds that Christ's death was a demonstration of just how bad sin really is. Well, if this is true, then the atonement really doesn't save anyone. God just forgives without any real payment for sins. The atonement makes it possible for God to sort of lower the bar on what's needed to forgive us of our sins because God's justice, his moral government, well, that was demonstrated at the cross. The trouble with this theory is that first, the cross doesn't do a real work. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. Second, God cannot demonstrate his moral government by relaxing his law. The moral government theory says that as long as God well, displays the seriousness of his law by, de by a demonstration of the cross, then his justice is satisfied. No, justice is not satisfied by this. This false theory, like the moral influence theory, is also a denial of the gospel. Now, another question we need to look at was the atonement really necessary to save? And if it is necessary to salvation, did the atonement have to happen in the way God designed it? Did the second person of the Trinity have to take human nature? Did he have to die? And did he have to suffer the humiliation of dying on the cross? Was the way that God designed the atonement necessary for our salvation? Did it have to happen that way? Now, there's two views on the necessity of the atonement and whether the atonement had to be done as Christ accomplished it. And there's a little bit of new vocabulary to go with these views. 
Hopefully you're ready for some new vocabulary. And the terms are in your notes, so you'll have them later. The first view is called hypothetical necessity. Hypothetical necessity. And this theory of hypothetical necessity holds that, well, God could have chosen other ways to save, other than atonement, and other than the way of atonement that he designed. But the reason why God designed and chose the particular way he did was because of all the possible paths to salvation, this path brought God the most glory. The theory holds that perhaps God could have saved his people without atonement at all. But the atonement, the instrument of atonement, the blood of Christ at the cross has the most advantages and shows God's grace more than other ways of saving. So when we call this theory hypothetical necessity, the name comes from the view that God could have hypothetically chosen other means to save, but God decreed this particular way. Therefore, because of God's decree that it be so, it has necessity. Now, there's another view. Consequent, absolute necessity. Consequent, absolute necessity. That's a phrase a little bit more complicated, but let's break it down word by word. First, the word consequent. This view starts with the assumption that God's under no obligation to save. When we say that salvation is by grace, that's what we mean. Grace means that we get what we don't deserve. God was under no obligation to save any sinner. But once God decreed to choose a people for himself and save them, everything that followed was a consequence of that decree. That's the consequent part of the phrase. God chose to save his people, not because he had to, but out of grace. But once God decreed from his grace, the rest of it is a consequence of that gracious decree. Now we get to the next two words, absolute necessity. Given that God freely chose to save out of grace, not out of obligation, the path that results from his decree, that particular path was absolutely necessary. There was no other way to accomplish the gracious decree to save other than atonement. And that atonement had to happen in exactly the way it did with the incarnation and the cross. The absolute necessity of atonement, if God were to choose to save at all, comes from God's perfections. The way of atonement that God designed was absolutely necessary if God were to save. Because the perfection of God's justice could not have been satisfied without the cross. I hold absolutely to consequent absolute necessity. God freely chose to save his people by his free grace. But once God did that, once God in his free grace decreed to save, the incarnation, the cross, the substitution of Christ for us was the only way to satisfy the perfect justice of God and still forgive us of our sins and account us righteous. But, you know, it turns out that neither of these views is a, a test of orthodox doctrine. There were luminaries of the faith, great men of the faith, who held to the other view, hypothetical necessity. The view that I hold to, consequent absolute necessity, was held by the early church father Irenaeus, later by Anselm, later still by the theologian Francis Turretin. The Heidelberg Catechism also holds to consequent absolute necessity, and I'll read from question 40 of that catechism. 
The question is, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? The answer from the Catechism is, because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Heidelberg Catechism says it had to happen that way. Scripture gives strong evidence that if God were out of freely given grace to save anyone, that salvation had to come by atonement. And that atonement had to come by Christ's incarnation and the cross. First, if you were with us in our study of the attributes of God, you probably remember that justice is an essential attribute of God. Because justice is an essential attribute of God, he simply can't just make it go away or change the definition of justice because he, just because he decides to. God doesn't switch essential attributes on and off. Back in session 16, we define the justice of God as that perfection of his nature whereby he is infinitely righteous in himself and in all he does, the righteousness of the divine nature exercised in his moral government. I'll just take us to one passage that shows that God will not simply overlook justice, and that is in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. In this passage, Paul is recounting the sins of mankind to place all of mankind in need of the cross. I'll read from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? All of mankind has sinned, and all are accountable to the justice of God and his judgment. Verse 3 tells us that the judgment of God cannot simply be overlooked by God or that man can just hide from it. The only alternative is if one stands in our place to atone for our sins. The next proof for consequent absolute necessity that if God, out of pure grace, saved anyone, that Christ's atonement was absolutely necessary, the next proof is the unimaginably high price paid for that atonement. The theologian A.A. Hodge explained the high price like this. This sacrifice would be most painfully irrelevant if it were anything short of absolutely necessary in relation to the end designed to be attained. That is, unless it be indeed the only possible means to the salvation of sinful man, God surely would not have made his son a wanton sacrifice to a bare point of will. In other words, God would not have given his son just for nothing. It was an unimaginably high price, and therefore it had to be done out of necessity if God were to save at all. I'll read next from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Once again, it tells us of the high price 
paid for our salvation. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He did not spare his own son for us to secure our salvation. Once God decreed from pure grace to save his people, the high price he paid of not sparing his own son is strong evidence that there was no other design for accomplishing salvation. Finally, let's turn to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 26. Here on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, Jesus says this about the necessity of his work and the necessity of him accomplishing it in this way. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? It was necessary that Christ should suffer. It was certainly necessary in order to fulfill prophecy, but I believe that Jesus was also speaking of the necessity of atonement in order to save. And this particular means of atonement, this instrument of atonement, the blood of Christ at the cross, Once again, just for clarity, the theory of consequent absolute necessity, which I hold to, doesn't mean that God had to save us. First of all, God decreed to save his people by his grace. He didn't have to save anyone. He wasn't constrained to save. That decree was purely by grace to God's everlasting praise. But once God decreed this out of grace... There was no other design for salvation possible than than atonement. With that instrument of atonement being Christ's work on the cross. And of course, since God's decision to save is of grace, the rest of the design of salvation is also of grace. Since the root of the decision is of grace, all of the necessary design of the atonement is also of grace. So, we've begun to look at the accomplishment of our redemption. We're out of time tonight, but there's more to examine. Next time, we'll look at the design of the atonement. In other words, for whom did Christ die? Was the atonement designed for everyone or for a subset of humanity? Then in the, set, in the study after that, we'll look at the priestly office of Christ. In previous studies, we looked at the offices of Christ in his mediatorial kingdom. We looked at his office of prophet and his office of king, But at that time, we skipped the office of priest because I thought it might fit in better as we look at how Christ accomplished our redemption. That's a general roadmap of where we're headed next. And I'll wrap up by quoting from a hymn by Isaac Watts, which speaks of the superiority of the atoning blood of Christ compared to the blood of animals in the Old Testament. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. 
Amen. Thank you for coming tonight.